You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. As the global economy continues its recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic, the worldwide shortage of computer chips continues to be a looming challenge for the automobile industry and other sectors. Intel CEO Pat Gelsinger joins Washington Post Live to address the future of the semiconductor industry, the digital acceleration during the pandemic, and how America can maintain its technological leadership. Let's listen. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Kat Zakreski, a tech policy reporter here at the Washington Post. Today, we're going to examine a key component of the global economy, the semiconductor industry. I'm joined today by Intel CEO, Pat Gelsinger. Welcome to Washington Post Live, Pat. Great to be with you, Kat, and thanks to join you and your audience uh, today. Well, thanks so much for being here. And we're going to get to an announcement that you made yesterday about an expansion of AI degree programs at 18 community colleges. But I wanted to start with a major issue in your industry. The world is facing a critical shortage of computer chips. And you've said that this shortage is likely to last beyond next year into 2023. What steps is Intel taking right now to catch up with demand? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, Kat. And you know, just overall, you know, as the world is going more digital, right? We were already, I think, probably going to be a little bit short, but then COVID, just the world just accelerated, and literally the uh, semiconductor industry went from five-ish percent growth rate to 20% growth rate. At the same time, the uh, supply chains were disrupted and probably went negative for most of last year. So all of a sudden you see this enormous gap in supply and demand and now seeing automakers, uh, manufacturing lines stopped and uh, medical makers stopped and PCs and clouds and shortage as we need more digital. And you know, so I'll just say we and the rest of the industry are pouring into this as rapidly as possible to build factories, to squeeze the productivity of them, work with our substrate in particular, you know, one of the key shortage in the material supply chain to get back the balance as quickly as possible. But the bad news is, you know, if we're gonna build a new factory, it takes two to three years to have it online, and a major new modern fab is almost four years. So, boy, you know, we hit the ground running as of you know nine months ago, but we still have a long way to go until we get back to supply-demand balance. And you know, I believe that the second half of this year will be probably the bottom, uh, the worst. But I think we're going to be still dealing with shortages until we get to some reasonable supply-demand balance through next year. And you know, we are leaning into this as hard as possible. I am pressing my construction teams and fab teams, uh, fabrication, our manufacturing facilities to go faster and produce more as quickly as possible, help our customers modernize their designs. So from some of these old nodes that are somewhat out of date and bring them forward to modern nodes, but starting a new design and requalifying, it takes time as well. So unfortunately, there's no quick fixes to this shortage. And on that point, you mentioned we haven't reached the bottom yet, but we're already seeing this have wide ranging effects on everything from automobiles to even dog washing businesses. I mean, where are some of the areas that you think consumers are going to feel this shortage moving forward? Well, I think clearly the auto industry has been sort of the point of the arrow 
And, you know, most auto companies and, you know, I was just on the phone with one of the major CEOs this morning, you know, when we hit COVID, you know, they stopped. And so all their supply chains stopped, including semiconductors. And then they came roaring back very quickly and strong. And this disrupted supply chains quite significantly. So I think auto is near the top of that list, but we now see it across everything. Right, industrials, because you can't, you know, say, boy, I'm going to do wafers just for auto. But we have shortages in Wi-Fi chips uh, to build uh, laptops, and we have shortages in memory chips for cloud and server opportunities. We have power controllers that are limited, uh, affecting many of the industrial industries. So quite widespread. This is largely the fabrication facilities are general purpose across them. It isn't like I can fix one and not affect the others. Everything is being impacted by what we said, you know, a major gap in supply as the world is becoming much more digital on a very rapid uh, pace. And you mentioned the impact that COVID had, and obviously the pandemic is dragging on. We're seeing this surge of the Delta variant here in the United States. How are you thinking about shoring up your supply chain to avoid some of the issues that you had in 2020? Yeah, very, very good and important uh, question, Kat, because one of the things, and you know, as I've come back to be the CEO of Intel now for the last five months, you know, that we need a more resilient, but also globally balanced supply chain. And if we were sitting here in 1990, uh, the U.S. would be building 37% of the world's semiconductors. Europe would be building 44%, hmm. you know, in Asia, the remainder. Well, now it's 12% in the U.S., 9% in Europe, and almost 80% in Asia. We've become too concentrated, and the world was focused on cost of supply chain as opposed to resilience of supply chain. And this has been the case across many industries, PPE, you know, vaccines. We've seen this in many industries where all of a sudden everybody is waking up and realizing resilience of supply chains is way more important. I mean, someone got lulled into sleep over the last uh, decade. So as we're coming out of this, we're saying, we're gonna build back better. We are gonna build back on US and European soil, you know, so that we have a more globally balanced supply chain. And I've said a moonshot for the administrators and you know, Washington, as well as those in Europe, would be that we go from 12 to 30% in the US, that Europe goes from nine to 20% in the next decade or so. And if we were sitting here uh, 10 years from now and we were 30%, 20%, and 50% across US, Europe, and Asia, I think all of us would feel very good. And in particular, we've been very encouraged both by European uh, efforts and some that they're taking, but very particularly with the CHIPS Act here in the US that passed through Senate and is now in the House. And we're just you know, telling all of the uh, congressional leaders, go fast, let's get this in the law because I wanna build factories a lot faster than we can today. And that assistance will make a big part in accelerating our industry to build back, but to build back better. Yeah, you bring up that funding that passed the Senate to support chip manufacturing. What is the status of your conversations right now with House lawmakers on that legislation? You know, it's very encouraging in many regards that there's good, you know, bipartisan, bicameral support for it. And obviously with the infrastructure bill and many other things uh, facing Congress, you know, we are just being very, very aggressive with the congressional leaders 
you know, we need to move quickly. And I think there's pretty general belief that over the next couple of months, you know, this should pass into law, be signed, good support across. And I'm just uh, here saying, let's go faster to get that uh, uh, completed. There are clearly questions as it's in the House, you know, areas like, you know, how will this work with uh, the NSF? And, uh, you know, how will uh, different uh, requirements uh, work with regard to funding and different portions of the House uh, who are looking at uh, different aspects of the infrastructure bill as well. So some of that normal you know, sausage making that occurs, but overall we're very encouraged. We simply say, let's go faster to get this in the law because I want to build factories faster than I can today. And so, yeah, can you tell me a little bit more about the stakes here? I mean, what would happen to Intel and other U.S. shipmakers if Congress doesn't pass this legislation? Yeah, and you know, clearly, as as we look at it, and you know, we have a tremendous amount of data um, that uh, if I built a factory in Asia, it'd be about thirty percent less than building it in the U.S. If I built it in China, I'd be fifty percent less. And a new factory for semiconductors is ten to fifteen billion dollars. And you know, so if I'm going to see offsets for 30 to 50 percent of that economically, you know, that's why the factories have moved to Asia, right? It is simply much more cost effective. And we want to build them on U.S. soil and European soil with U.S. IP, you know, that we really own that foundational element of the uh, technology industry. As I would say, it's not like the U.S. or Europe said we don't want semiconductors in the U.S. It's that the Asians said we do want them in Asia. And they've put strong incentives in place to really underscore and make those industries much more competitive being built in Asia. So we, we view this path from 39 to 12% and 44 to 9% as really the collapse of U.S. manufacturing and Intel is, you know, one of the few remaining companies who are manufacturing at scale in the U.S. And if the only way I can economically do that is to move our factories there, well, that's what we'll have to do to compete. But it's absolutely not what we want to occur. This is so important for the entire technology industry, for the U.S. economy and for U.S. national security. You know, Kat, name one thing that's going on in life today that isn't becoming more digital. You know, this is foundational to every aspect of humanity. And we're gonna be dependent on a very small number of factories that are controlled in Asia. That's just not right for humanity. It's not right for our nation. And that's why, you know, we're so passionate on this particular topic. You know, we wanna build this in the US, create a globally balanced supply chain, ensure our national economy and our national security as well. And on that point about competition, I mean, Samsung, TSMC, these major manufacturers, they're ahead of Intel right now when it comes to the types of chip technology that they're making. What's your plan to catch up? Yeah, thank you. And, you know, we, you know, Intel stumbled. Uh, I've come in in part uh, uh, in response to some of those uh, stumbles. And we've laid out a course to resume competitive parity and leadership. We just described that in great detail uh, last week and we're managing that uh, very closely. And uh, we are now on the path to close those gaps and resume competitive uh, leadership uh, in the next uh, couple of years. Uh, we, we 
We at Intel, we've uh, done all of the major transistor innovations of the last uh, 25 years. We just laid out a path for the next major transistor innovation, which we'll be introducing in 2024 uh, with a large buildup of capacity. So we believe we are quickly riding the ship, also then building the best products uh, on those capabilities to resume our competitiveness across data center and client. Uh, but we have many areas of leadership that we've never stumbled in, and our packaging technologies in particular have been some where we are the leader in the world today. And as we put that together with resuming process, uh, we're confident that we are back on the track and that the capabilities that we're suggesting be built out. And as I've said earlier in the year, I want to build my next major mega fab location and announce that uh, in uh, the U.S. Uh, before the end of the year, that that will be you know, the most leading technology, the most refined and uh, capable manufacturing capacity all in the U.S. with U.S. intellectual property. This is just the right thing for us as a company and us as a nation. And what locations are you currently considering for that facility? Yeah, we're uh, looking broadly across the U.S. We're uh, saying come one, come all for uh, proposals. This will be a very large site, uh, so six to eight FAB modules. And at each of those FAB modules, between 10 and $15 billion. It's a, you know, a project over the next decade on the order of $100 billion of capital, 10,000 direct jobs. 100,000 jobs are created as a result of those 10,000 by our uh, experience. So essentially, we want to build a little city. We're engaging with a number of states across uh, the United States today who are giving us proposals for uh, site locations, energy, water, environmentals, near universities, uh, skilled capacity. And I expect to make an announcement about that uh, location uh, before the end of this year. Got it. And yeah, it sounds a lot like Intel's version of the Amazon HQ2 contest in a lot of ways. <laughs> a, a little bit so. You know, here though, I think, uh, you, you know, the aspects of, uh, uh, you know, as we've, you know, our sites in Oregon and uh, in uh, Arizona, we have large sites in Ireland and Israel as well. These become hubs for those entire communities. And we've seen in all of our locations, it brings suppliers, other companies come into it, you know, university, uh, you know, community college, uh, training uh, programs, uh, the uh, need for, you know, schools, restaurants, et cetera. These are really just such spectacular projects. And if you go to those communities, you know, it's been just entirely transformational for them. And that's what we want to do. We want to build that kind of capability to even expand even further on U.S. soil. And you just mentioned community colleges, and I want to take some time to talk about your big announcement from yesterday. Um, you said that you're launching an Intel AI workforce program at 18 community colleges across the United States. So can you tell us a little bit about how that program is going to work? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, we, we are excited because, you know, not everybody's going to be a PhD, but everybody, you know, as I would say, in the past, it was read, write, and arithmetic. In the future, it's read, write, code, and arithmetic uh, as the uh, three. And, uh, you know, with it, you know, and I personally, you know, I'm a farm boy from Pennsylvania, sort of stumbled into technology 
you know, went to uh, community college and really just the, the great American Cinderella story. So it's something close to my personal heart as well. That's, uh, you know, many bright, capable, uh, you know, they don't have the opportunity to be uh, MIT or Stanford uh, entry, but beginning the basic skills around AI, and we view AI as one of the superpowers of technology that uh, takes vast computing and data and uh, creates intelligence from it. And the skill of being able to use AI is one that we think will be foundational to almost every industry category going forward. Where if you go to a doctor in the future and they are not using AI-assisted radiology, leave. Right? If you're, you know, it's becoming part of the cyber infrastructure, part of the, you know, capabilities on, you know, uh, retail, uh, you know, all the things that we're doing for automation and manufacturing. So very foundational skills. So what this is, is building these programs with 18 community colleges, and we're building on a success model that we already had in place to start this AI uh, uh, programs that enable us to have this workforce development with the basics of AI. And we do believe that it becomes basic for everybody, but we also expect that this will be some of the Pat Gelsingers of the future, that this will be the starting point, and they go on to university and that they progress with their career and their employers. So we view it as something just foundational for the workforce for the future, but also enabling people to enter. And in the community college, you know, they just have such great, great, um, you know, indication, you know, typically, you know, far more blacks, far more underrepresented minorities, far more of the lower strata. You know, this is the only path they have to really enter the high tech and the high skilled workforce. So we're quite excited about the program. AI couldn't be more foundational. And uh, we do hope that uh, sometime soon, Kat, we're on a conversation where we're saying, okay, we've launched our next 50, next 100 community colleges. And do you at Intel plan to hire graduates of these programs? Oh, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. And uh, not only do we plan to hire, but we plan to shove some of our workers into these programs as well to help upskill them as well. We do in so many respects, and I think you know much has been said about uh, you know the cost of higher education and the debt burdens that come out of higher education. So we think programs like this are ways for businesses to say, "Oh, I'm going to start putting some of my workers through these programs, so that I'm essentially enabling them to move into the next strata of our workforce, as well as reaching back into the pipeline." And saying, boy, you know, let's let's start scholarshiping. These aren't that expensive of programs. And then let's accelerate the hiring programs for internships, other programs like that that we see that both are a major cost offset, but also an accelerant. As I say, you know, I love interns, and uh, you know, you work them like crazy, and you hire all the good ones because they already know the company, and you already know them. And so many good efficiencies in hiring, training, workforce upskilling. Uh, uh, every aspect of this is just delightful when you click into the numbers more carefully, you know, and the fact that it uh, reaches communities that are well underrepresented with university, uh, underrepresented minorities, uh, you know, black communities. It is really a thrilling when you look at the, uh, the statistics behind this few things that you could do that, you know, would be a better type of program and to do it around AI is you know, such an exciting technology domain. This is almost as good as it gets.
So how is the lack of existing AI training in the American education system, how is that currently affecting Intel? You know, we, you know, as I say inside of the company, Kat, that we believe that uh, you know, we need to bring AI to every aspect of our business, right? And as we think about uh, AI, you know, should I be using the most advanced AI to help us predict wafer yields? Absolutely. Should I be using it to help me do more intelligent pricing? Absolutely. Should I be using it to help me manage my supply chain introspections more effectively? Absolutely. Should I be building more capabilities so that the PCs that we build become more AI intuitive for voice prediction, you know, and maybe voice becomes a way to make it more accessible for disabilities? Well, absolutely. Should we be building more capabilities into our cloud offerings so that we're able to do more model training uh, for uh, medical fields or for our autonomous driving. You know, and just going through a few of those examples, you see that it's affecting not just how we work, but also every aspect of the products that we build. And we see this across essentially every industry. You know, which industry should be using AI to do better customer support or to do better targeted you know, uh, uh, you know, supply chain and advertising. It's literally across everything that we do that we see the intelligence of AI becoming meaningful. And programs like the one that we announced, just announced yesterday are essentially helping people to become both experts in AI, but also practitioners in the use of AI. And these two aspects, I think, really say it really is AI for everyone. And speaking of how AI affects every company, I want to switch gears to another issue that's affecting every business, which is obviously COVID. And looking back on the past year and a half, I mean, what have been the biggest lessons for you as a CEO? Well, you know, it was very interesting. I became the CEO of Intel uh, five months ago. Uh, I had to step into my job not being able to meet my team, except virtually, uh, as we're doing today. We had our first uh, executive meeting about uh, two months ago, so I'm now maybe three months into my tenure as CEO, and I walk into the room and I looked at two of my staff members that I never met in person before, and I says, huh, you're shorter than I thought you were. <laughs> you know, and all of a sudden you're just like, <laughs> you, know, you know, I mean, this is fabulous, but it's not the same as having been in relationship. And I, and I think of the virtual environment because you know, our teams and our organizations have been extraordinarily effective working virtually. You know, I mean, this is the biggest migration of the human workforce in history in a, such a short period of time. And everything sort of worked, right? You know, we're able to keep an, an idea of hybrid uh, work uh, or as we would say, you know, we now all live at work uh, in that sense. It's been amazing how well it's done. But it also means there's no boundaries to the day anymore. Right? I don't drive to work or leave from work. It just sort of starts and I have my six-step commute from my bedroom to my office. And, you know, you're into work. And, you know, it pervades the nights, the mornings, the weekends, uh, remote teams everywhere. You're struggling to build a relationship, to maintain culture. You know, through the pandemic, uh, uh, you know, we, we've hired 10,000 people at the company. Wow, they've never actually touched one of our facilities or, you know, been able to meet with their managers. 
know, it's an extraordinary thing to be able to address that. You know, we're seeing uh, levels of uh, worker fatigue because you now just have this, you know, days don't end or begin, right? There, this continuum of work. And I'll say many of the disciplines, and, you know, I've written on the subject of uh, balancing faith, family, work, and, you know, those disciplines of how you draw the lines between my work life and family become even more important in COVID, the mental health and wellness of our uh, teens, but also many good things, right? You know, hybrid work, right? You know, I don't care where you live, Kat, you can be part of my team now, right? I don't need you to move from, you know, taking care of your mother in, you know, some part of the U.S. where I would never have a site to now, I'm just fine with you being close to your mom and being in that site. I just need to show up at our campuses for team building events or, you know, for uh, innovation sprints uh, that we might have uh, going forward. So there's many aspects of this that are just changing the workforce in a very good way, but you also have to be very thoughtful about some of the things that you're giving up and how you make up for those in this COVID. And now I'd say, you know, we believe that most companies will end up primarily as hybrid workforces going forward. Yes, and that hybrid work experience, obviously you and I have been able to have, isn't something though that all workers in the US have been able to enjoy. And, you know, there have been um, a lot of, there, there are a lot of Intel workplaces, um, factories for instance, where employees do need to physically be there to get their jobs done. So um, what <laughs> precautions are you taking and, and how are you thinking about that moving forward? Yeah. And, uh, you know, we, we've been just extraordinary. The, the factories and, you know, as I would say, the labs and the fabs where people have to touch physical things, right? <laughs> you know, I need them there, right? <laughs> you know, you, you can't live remotely. You got to be in the fab, right, to be uh, running the uh, factory. Um, and you know, if you go into one of our fabs, you know, you are in like the most hermetically sealed, safe, airflow, clean, bunny suits, et cetera. You know, so you're like ultra safe. We already have all these cleaning procedures in place. So in many regards, we're like the easiest industry to deal with COVID because everybody has to go through it. Of course, we had to take extra precautions, uh, manage that uh, thoughtfully. But in so many respects, you know, this is this has been was relatively easy because we're already such a high-tech, extreme, clean room environment that everybody is already working in. So we have about 35% of our 114,000 employees that have never stopped right through COVID. And again, special precautions and how we've uh, managed through that. Uh, and as we look forward and how it's really having to do more with the 65%, how do they come back to a new model and a hybrid model of work into the future? And you know, I, I think it's just the the resilience of the workforces that we've seen in our employees. You know, they, they are the true uh, heroes of uh, COVID for us. Definitely, and we only have a few minutes left, so I wanted to just ask you a final question about your personal journey. Um, what's it like coming back to be CEO of a company that you had already spent three decades with? Yeah, 30 years, and then I call my 11-year vacation, which you know, I just recently uh, uh, read uh, uh, the Isaacson book on Steve Jobs, and it was 11 years that Steve was out of Apple. I thought, oh, 11 years? There must be something magic about that. And you know, I've also called it sort of the death of a vision because you know I wanted to be the CEO of Intel. I had written that you know almost 30 years ago on my mission statement. And then leaving, it was sort of like, you know, in the first couple of years, you're like, oh, 
you know, just the angst of it and the, you know, and so on, you know, why did it work out this way? And then uh, being able to come back now to my uh, dream job, but being gone long enough also to gain an independent perspective. I'm not a rookie CEO any longer. You know, I've learned and developed a real view of how to work and partner with the board of directors, different perspectives about software and uh, AI and its critical role into the industry. So I bring back to the job a lot of skills that I would have never gotten had I continued to be in the role. So it's sort of like, okay, God, I don't know why I needed to be gone for 11 years, but now that I'm back, I see that every experience you know, of my entire career and the 11-year vacation uh, is now being fully utilized. I, I joke that I said, if you would do an MRI of my brain at the end of any week, every neuron has fired, right? There's no experience that isn't being utilized. And we're making extremely rapid pace to bring this iconic Intel, one of the most important companies for uh, America, the company that puts silicon into Silicon Valley. And you know that company. It is now my honor, my you know joy to you know to recognize the founders, Grove, Noyce, and more, some of the most iconic people of the industry, the role that it plays in technology, and the criticality of it for the nation. I get the honor of leading that company in this journey. Yeah, this is pretty thrilling for me. And obviously, Intel's changed so much, and you're coming back in a pandemic. But what's still the same? You know, there are many, you know, this, this place is littered with talent. You know, we have more PhDs, more patents, more innovators, you know, it's just everywhere. And now it's, you know, how do we harness that and bring that forward? And that was always one of the hallmarks of Intel. And I was just with a customer uh, yesterday. And they says, you're a real engineering company. It's like, yeah, that's right. That's who we are. You know, that depth of deep technology. We bend physics. Uh, as I say, Moore's law, this view of semiconductors continuing to increase. We're not finished until we've exhausted the periodic table. We're a curious bunch, right, that are seeking to find every aspect, you know, of God, what, what God has placed in the materials of life. We're the ones that are going to exploit them better than any other. You know, and that deep passion is what drives us as a company to be that relentless innovator. And then to use that technology as what I like to say, we're shaping it as a force for good. Technology is neutral, but can we be the company that's constantly bending it toward good? And then finally, that we could touch the lives of every person on the planet. Every human is improved by our technologies. That's who we are. But we also needed to modernize the company. It's a more diverse period. You know, millennials and new work, you know, they have different expectations of what it's like to be part of it. Uh, for uh, a, a company like ours. But, you know, as I would say, many things that were old are new again, but we also got to adjust and make it, you know, a company that everybody says, hey, I want to do the coolest work of my life, working with the smartest people on earth to change the life of every person on the planet. We want you here. This is part of the company that we want you to be in. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time, so we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us. Pat Gelsinger, CEO of Intel. Thank you so much, Kat, and for everyone listening. I'm Kat Zakreski. As always, thanks for watching. To check out what interviews we have co coming up, please head to WashingtonPostLive.com to register and find out more information about all our upcoming programs.
Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.